Welcome into another episode of Behind the Catch Fence. I'm your host, David Hoffman. Welcome to episode 30. Man, we are 30 episodes into this franchise of a podcast. Well, franchise, eh, you never know, it could be there eventually. But before I begin, I'd like to give a quick shout out to No Copyright Music on YouTube. They're the ones creating the music that I'm playing. It's obviously no copyright music, so it's free. I'd like to thank you guys for that. With me being a broke college student, I'm grateful for you guys. Go subscribe to them, No Copyright Music. As I said before, welcome to episode 30. We made it to the big 30, everybody. Man, what a wild ride it's been. I'd like to thank all of my listeners for tuning in every week, and I'd also like to thank all the drivers who have joined the show. March and April have by far been the biggest months in this show's history, with guys like John Force, Richard Petty, Simon Pagano, Elio Castroneves, Stingray Rob, just all joining the show. I never could have imagined having that stacked of a lineup one year ago, but here we are. <laughs> I figured why not keep the interview train rolling along with yet another fantastic guest. Today on the special 30th episode of Behind the Catch Fence, we have none other than the 2011 NASCAR Hall of Fame inductee and 1988 Daytona 500 champion, Bobby Allison. The driver fifth all-time in most wins with 84 has long been a staple in the sport as he helped put NASCAR on the mainstream map alongside Richard Petty, Kale Yarborough, Darrell Waltrip, and Bill Elliott. Alongside with his brother Donnie and Red Farmer, they formed the famous Alabama Gang in the 60s and 70s as they tore up and dominated tracks all across the state. Bobby and I discuss a number of topics, and if you enjoyed my interviews with the legendary Mario Andretti and Richard Petty, I'm positive that you'll be equally, if not more, entertained. Now enough with the chit-chat, let's get right into it. Sit back, relax, grab your favorite snack, maybe some fish sticks, or chicken nuggets, whatever you like, and enjoy this episode with the legendary Bobby Allison. Hey, Mr. Allison, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? Pretty good. Good. Uh, How have you been uh, with uh, the whole pandemic going on? Well, it's been a chore from here to there, you know. Uh, I had to make a lot of changes in plans, changes in routine and all that stuff. So far, we're still making it barely. Barely, yeah. We're getting to the end of the, we're getting to the finish line here soon, hopefully. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, let's hope so. (laughs) Uh, Just first off, just where did your love for racing begin? Well, I grew up in Miami, far born and raised in Miami. And after the Second World War, um, some guys got together and got, got the idea to get a little racetrack going. And they got a chance to use a part of the Opelika Air Base, which had been downsized. It wasn't closed completely, but it downsized. And so there was some vacant land there. And, and uh, it was quite unusual because uh, they had some grandstand bleachers, I guess it was from some of the other activities that they had had there, but um, they had paved straightaways, which were the uh, service lanes that they made for the, you know, getting the equipment to the airplanes and so forth, Naval Air Station there. And uh, so it had paved straightaways and dirt corners. And so these guys had charged down these straightaways and go sliding off into the dirt and it was, it was really attractive and I was about 10 years old and I thought that was neat 
these things I've seen up to that point. And uh, I really, uh, I worked to get to go there often. I mowed grass and earned a couple bucks and did things like that. But rode my bicycle through. It was about probably, probably eight or 10 miles from my house to where the racetrack was. Paid a lot there to the racetrack and pay my quarter to get in and watch those races. And, uh, and then, then they built a, a new paved track at Hialeah. And uh, so I was there for opening day and I had turned, I guess, uh, I guess I had turned about 16. I was a junior in the high school. And uh, I had a motorcycle. I was a little tiny guy, but I had enthused about getting a motorcycle. I ended up buying a Harley 74 from a guy. And I rode it, and I actually never spelled or anything. But if it fell over, I was too little to pick the thing back up. I'd always have to get somebody to help me pick it up. But anyway, rode that motorcycle out there. They decided they're going to have an amateur division. And uh, one of my classmates was Fran Kersey, who later became one of the quarterbacks for University of Miami and went on to do pros for a while and became the coach of the Tampa Bay team uh, early in the expansion. But anyway, Fran had a 38 Chevy Coupe. So I saw my motorcycle and bought his 38 Chevy Coupe and put my seat belt in there and painted a number on the door with shoe polish and went out to Holiday Speedway and started my racing career. And you mentioned this with local tracks. I've always been fascinated, just especially back during that time when racing was really starting to uh, become a bigger thing. Uh, just what made those local tracks so special just with having you know these competitors from all over wanting to you know try out this? Well, first of all, the car thing was really neat. They had pretty good rules and, and regulations, and um, you had to adhere by race regulations that made the cars pretty competitive. And, uh, of course, the, the Fords and Plymouths were the most competitive initially, but also the, the Chevys were a little bit. And I a 38 Chevy that I got from Fran was one of those that, that was able to be tuned on a little bit. And, and uh, uh, in, in fact, it was able to be tuned well enough that the third week of this thing, uh, after having 30 cars in the first week and 40 in the second week and 50 in the second uh, third week, I won the feature or the event. Actually, you know, I only had one event, but it was the main event for those guys or for us guys. And uh, it really turned me on. Um, made my mom a little bit disappointed, but I said, Mom, if you, if you let me race, I'll improve my grades in school. And so uh, I kind of won her over a little bit. And, and uh, I went ahead and did, got my grades up a little bit, which at least I felt like that uh, I was taking care of my side of the bargain. And so I raced until the end of the school year, which is when I graduated. And uh, then uh, 
really unusual deal happened to me. I was uh, I joined the National Guard, which I really was an unusual thing in a lot of ways. First of all, I was really little. I was five foot four tall and weighed 110 pounds and did not shave. So I graduated from high school and I had already won a couple of races. And so I really thought I was going to go somewhere. Well, found out that the National Guard was recruiting for youngsters and, and trying to get that thing going. I was uh, impressed by a couple of the guard superiors and the, the commander of the troop. They had a little Cuban lieutenant that was really a neat guy. And uh, I joined up with them. And with that, I got an offer from my uncle through my mom's uh, prompting him to get me to go to Wisconsin to get me away from the racetracks in, in South Florida. By then, I discovered there were more than Hialeah. Uh, actually, was one uh, up uh, further up there, West Palm Beach. And there was one in uh, Key West, Florida, of all places, which is a long ways away, but at least I knew it was there. <clears throat> anyway, I uh, went ahead and uh, responded to the National Guard. And with that, got this offer to go to Wisconsin. Got an honorable discharge from the National Guard and uh, packed up and went to Wisconsin. And uh, my uncle, Uncle Jimmy Hallett, uh, had me a job with Mercury Outboard Motors. And, you know, I was thinking it was like probably some mechanic in one of the assembly lines or, you know, some uh, cleanup guy or some anything but what the real deal was. When I got there, I found out that myself and three other youngsters that they hired, they were all over 18. I was still 17, but but uh, the four of us were test boat drivers. And so we put boats in the water every day and rode around the lakes and rivers of Wisconsin and then got a paycheck on Friday. So I thought that was really a neat deal. And uh, stayed there for uh, about six months and finally the cold weather came in and stuff that I had never seen before that fell out of the sky, you know, that white stuff. Uh, and uh, so they closed down the boathouse there and shipped us to a the uh, Southern Boathouse, which was at Sarasota, Florida. And uh, from there, I got uh, sent back to the uh, race car shop in Charlotte, North Carolina, which was really great for me. And I went, worked um, uh, two months and uh, two months and two weeks, I think it was, at, at uh, the little shop, or the big shop that KK had in Charlotte. Buck Baker drove and Speedy Thompson and uh, Jimmy Thompson, Herb Thomas, a few other guys along the way, Jack Smith. And uh, I went to a race and worked. First of all, I went to shopping and Ray, Ray Fox put me work working on the car. And we went to a race and one of our cars won the race. And that was really neat. Then uh, over my period of time there, I went to 19 NASCAR races and 
one of our cars won every one of those 19 races. And really had me enthused over that. Key Caper was hard to work for. And finally, uh, that came to an end. And, and I left and went back to South Florida and got my stuff going and learned a little bit more about racing and driving myself. And, and then uh, when I was 21 years old, I went to, went to uh, Alabama for the first time. And Alabama from where my crew really started and, and blossomed. And you mentioned this with uh, working on cars, just when you were you know, growing up with that. Just where did you learn to learn, like, just to work on cars? And how did that kind of help you when you transitioned into full-time racing? Well, you learn by we're fixing the lawnmower and fixing the, uh, anything that's got a little motor on it and taking the outboard motor apart. Uh, you know, my dad had an outboard motor and, didn't use it much because he worked all the time, but I would get over there where he couldn't see what I was doing and take it apart and put it back together. And sure enough, it would run again. Uh, we had a car, a, a lawnmower. I had a gasoline motor on, a, on top of a little lawnmower. And so I got where I could take that lawnmower apart, and the motor apart on the lawnmower. And, and uh, that was a fun deal. That taught me a little bit about that. And then I got that, that uh, Chevy from Grant Kersey, and pretty soon I was taking it apart and putting it back together, too. And just with uh, being at the track for uh, you know so many years, just growing up through the sport, uh, just I'm sure there was a lot of personal growth through you know all the years of just racing and being around family, friends, and just what were some of like the biggest lessons that you've learned just inside the sport? Well, the first thing I guess I learned is, uh, you know, everybody had to go by a given set of rules and regulations. And uh, I began to, to know that I could look at the different rule books and, and put the specifications for different cars and different applications. Study that and pick out the best one and try to experiment and try stuff, go to the racetrack and see if something was a little better or what wasn't quite as good. And uh, I really got handy at that early on. And then I got some, some help. There was an old man that lived in our neighborhood who had raced back in the 30s on the old dirt tracks with the, the fairgrounds circuit the ran in those days and uh, he was a great help to me and he, he taught me things about preparation and about the setups for the car to make the car handle better in the corner drive better go faster all those kind of things and uh, really paid attention to that and, and uh, you know was famous for building another car every time I turned around it seemed like you know, it didn't take a lot, but it did take a little bit of cutting and welding and, you know, putting things in position and, you know, getting that preparation all done. And it was really good for me. And I had seen the specifications of real 
high tech specs that when I was with KKIP because I got assigned to the to the race team there at KKIP and they had some really good mechanics and really good late equipment and modern equipment and uh, that all was good for me. And you mentioned earlier about uh, the Alabama game uh, when that kind of got started with uh, you know you your brother Donnie and a uh, Red Farmer. Just how did that come to be? Well, Red Farmer was a one of the guys that was winning in South Florida, and I would ride my bicycle out there and skate again in the grandstand, and then finally throw my little pretty Chevy coupe out there and go race myself. And I was aware that he was. A, a uh, fairly frequent winner, and uh, I met two young guys that, that uh, were were just helpers at his shop. You know, actually they were just practically cleaning up for you know just kept the place clean and neat and stuff like that. Roger and Bill Pergam, and uh, so I, I went over at my red shop. They were building a, a new Chevy, a V8 Chevy car, which, which was not very common at the time yet. And uh, that old fellow that was chief mechanic, Homer Warren, uh, was also the service manager of the big Ford dealerships in there in Miami. And I knew him because of riding with my dad around some of his jobs, and one of them was at my, all mine were Ford. And uh, so Homer said, that, Well, you've been up there where they, up there at Key Capers, where they run the dual four barrels. And uh, I want to run dual four barrels. And so I want you to get them ready. So here's a manifold and here's two carburetors, and you get them ready, and I'll have the engine ready in, in a day or two. And so I said, Sure. I had never even had a carburetor. I had not even had a screw out of a carburetor at that time. I went to a parts store and bought a engine overhaul, a carburetor overhaul manual, and uh, went to that carburetor part and adjusted all like the, the book said it was supposed to be. Made a nice set of throttle linkage and you know a nice gasoline took up for it. Took it and gave it to Homer. And, Homer stuck that thing on there and they went to the racetrack and, and the Red Farmer won the next 19 feature races in a row. And uh, by then I had gotten noticed that I had done, had done something to help the car and so a guy had offered me his, his uh, horseman car to race and, uh, if I would work on his modified Austin. So I did that and raced it sportsman car and I could win the sportsman heat but the modified sort behind the sportsman feature but then by the time the feature went while they all got passed. Um, but I, sometimes I finished as far up as second. Never won one but I finished as far up as second. And then uh, the, the guy that had that car decided he didn't want to do it anymore and by then I was off to build them my own stuff and built my, my own first modified. And uh, it ran pretty good. And a friend of mine uh, took a trip up through Alabama because 
his girlfriend went up that way, and him and my other friend that owned the car that he'd been driving decided they, they would go see if there were tracks in Alabama they were race at. But they didn't. They came home with these big stories that he had a really great track in Alabama paved and, and good purses and all that stuff. And so I took, took Donnie with me. And uh, he was kind of on the outs with mom at the time because because he was a little older than me and younger and uh, was, was a little bit more in trouble than I was on and off. But uh, she uh, wanted to get him away from the racetracks down there. And we took, took him with me to Alabama. And he'd been driving a little bit of limited, limited sportsman, had a, a helmet and, and uh, you know, a little bit of racing gear and ready to go. And so we went to Alabama. And uh, the first night I qualified on the pole, my memory, and led, you know, led the race, did everything, but another guy beat me for the feature. And I finished second. Got a bag full of money, it looked like. And so I was really, really sold on that deal. And then um, I went to see you know, back home during the in-between week to see my love life, little Miss Judy. And, uh, you know, got back in time for Friday night's events. And we ran Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday afternoon. And uh, got back in time to, to get the weekend stuff in. And uh, the second weekend, I won Montgomery, which was on the second night, uh, Saturday night of the weekend. I won my first feature of my career that night. And Donnie, uh, well, we had other friends with us, Kenny Andrews on the car and Gil Hearn drove and, and Gil Hearn went home. And Kenny said, what do I do, what do I do? And I put Donnie in there. And so Donnie ran his first modified race ever that night that I won my first. And uh, he had a good finish. And I didn't win, but he, he was, he won some money and, and uh, had a good run. So he got his start. And uh, he and Kenny stayed together. And I went back and forth and bounced uh, around anywhere I could see or hear of a track. You know, we were on a different track. I enjoyed that, but also thought it helped me too. Just getting a diff different racetrack, getting used to whatever the different field would be. And uh, so we ended that year with, well, I, I think, four, four wins that first year. And I was really, uh, really happy and uh, really decided to make Alabama my home and run those tracks. And you had mentioned just with you, uh, you and your brother Donnie, you guys have, for years have just seemed to be inseparable. Just, you know, uh, just how special just was your relationship with him to, you know, just to grow up to go to the racetrack every single week. And just, you know, I'm sure that was a lot of fun being able to go to Alabama and just, you know, experience all that with him. Well, that part was too. And I skipped over a part that I really should mention too. Uh, I was a fan of Red Farmers. He, he ran good down in Miami, and, and I got to know him personally, and I had built those carburetors for him, and they, they were a big success for him. And so I went home and got him 
trouble ready, you need to load your stuff and go to Alabama. Purses are good. The tracks are good. You know, it's really is a good thing. And he came back for a 4th of July event that spread over two weekends. The 4th was in the middle of the week that he And so the weekend building up to it had special events. And then the weekend after the 4th had special events. So they, they all paid extra and had all kinds of different activities going on. And Red ran uh, he ran eight races in the seven-day period, and he won seven of them. So seven out of eight was pretty impressive. And uh, in fact, one of the other pretty good competitors said, what did you bring that guy for? And I said, that's who I want to beat. So and it took me a while, but then I got where I could beat very far for two. It made me happy. And you and uh, you and Donnie, you guys just, you know, you seem to be just, I'm sure that was a lot of fun just to see him be successful as well during those times. And um, just what, what kind of lessons did you guys learn from each other just as you were, you know, moving up to NASCAR? Well, we helped each other with the setups on the cars and experimenting with the, you know, how much that bite you would put in the chassis and how much, you know, you do this or that, how much air pressure maybe or whatever, how much spring. And uh, and then it then had the comradeship between the three of us, you know. Uh, Red was enjoyable to be around and, and Donnie was enthusiastic like I was. And, uh, you know, we really enjoyed working on the cars. And, and uh, as you take something apart it and put it back together, um, if you just pay a little bit of attention to what you're doing, you do learn. And so we, we were pretty good at that. And we, we uh, the, the, sec, the uh, third year that we were in Alabama, we were in, I think, uh, 90, 96 races, I think. And I won uh, 41 of them. And Red Farmer ran about 20 of them, and Donnie ran about 25 of them. So uh, we uh, we became the Alabama gang, for sure. You pretty much tore up all of those tracks, for <laughs> definitely. Um, yeah. But um, just you know, looking back uh, during just your entire career, what were some – or just what kept you going when times were tough, you know, whether it was on the track, off the track? Well – you know, life has is, is got its tough points. You know, it's, um, I had some mishaps along the way. I had a couple of crashes and a couple where he even got hurt a little bit. You know, not seriously hurt like later on. Later on, I got really, really hurt. But uh, hard, hard enough hit that it, uh, it was painful. And a couple of weeks of recuperation even be feel like, you know, can de deal with a, a night race. And it's uh, it helped me, and, and I'm sure it helped Donnie, and certainly helped Red. Red is 94 years old right now and still racing. So that, he, he's incredible. He went back to dirt, which we, we didn't do the dirt. 
Yeah, I only did it better than I did, but uh, I really avoided it the best I could. But, but Red Farmer still went on dirt just, just a few years ago, and he, he's got a new dirt car right now, and, and he's at Little Talladega on Saturday night. And uh, you know, this uh, always was a, a, a boost for my enthusiasm. And, uh, you know, we just worked away, but we got a big kick out of being called the Alabama game. All three of us were from Florida, but it became the Alabama game, and that was okay with me. And you mentioned in 1980, you mentioned like bigger crashes that you've had over the course of your career. Uh, 1987 at Talladega was probably the one of the more bigger ones. Uh, just I know that, that kind of changed the landscape just for how NASCAR looked at super speedways. Uh, just before restrictor plates, what kind of or how dangerous was it to run a, a Daytona or a Talladega? Well, you know, the restrictor plates certainly were a help because the speeds were really getting wilder uh, about that period of time. But um, the high speeds were something that they had never seen before before Daytona came on. And uh, <coughs> you know, then uh, we were kind of adjusting to that pretty good and then Talladega came along and it was better and faster than Daytona. And so uh, it, it was a situation where we had go through a whole new learning process, but also we had to look at car construction again, um, you know, safety stuff, um, better roll bars, better suspension, all those kind of things too. Better aerodynamics even. Uh, at first, aerodynamics were not even a part of our picture and it make it look nice and that, that, that was pretty much the deal. But all of a sudden we found out that you know, made the fender look a little bit different like this, like the headlight in a little bit different place and stuff like that, that it, it actually did help the aerodynamics of the car. And uh, so all those things came together and, and kept us working, trying to find all the solutions that we needed for all the different problems. And uh, I think we did a pretty good job of that. We, uh, we didn't do the the best, total best job done, but uh, I think that we, we did well on that. I don't know, one of the cars that you've run uh, during your career was that uh, the Superbird, uh, the Plymouth Superbird. How did that handle compared to, you know, a, a normal stock car at the time? Well, actually, I ran the Dodge Daytona, which was Dodge Daytona, yep. Dodge's uh, car, the same actual configuration um, and I went fast in the, in the Dodge and I went fast the first, very first time because the car drove so smooth and responded so well to driver input and uh, because it, it drove smooth I held the steering wheel very straight where most of the other guys saw it back and forth on the wheel and they found out that that was scrubbing speed off. And uh, I, I saw that and I saw it was help. And, and the, the wings, both the Dodge and the Plymouth had exactly the same wing, but the, the wing really made the car stable. Uh, you know, it could 
could go into it a little bit of a slide and get it right back on any great big maneuver. You know, we, we were, some of us were pretty good at going into great big slides and sliding for long ways before we ever got it back straight. But, but those, you could ease up off that gift pedal and turn right back around straight. And uh, that was pretty neat. It gave you a lot of confidence to, to run the car hard and to run close to, to each other. And uh, that the Aero Wars became quite interesting because Ford didn't do the, the wing thing. You know, they, they just did the, the body work. And uh, Ralph Moody who was one of my really all-time great heroes and, and who I drove very successfully on a couple of occasions. Um, he really had the knack for knowing how to, besides that sheet metal just a little bit, so pass the inspection, but go faster. And uh, we did that, and of course, encouraged the factories to, to reduce the cars, made the cars a little bit more aerodynamic right from the factory. So. And that all became better and better. And you mentioned that with uh, you know, a little bit more than that could kind of sneak by NASCAR. Uh, just I know the 60s and 70s seem to be more lenient in terms of you know inspection that they have a lot more technical now. Uh, just how was you know I, that was one example, but uh, how how did you guys find ways to kind of find a little bit of an advantage on the comp on the competition? I used to go to the racetrack and, and uh, have little gimmicks prepared where you could go ahead and run a car that had gone to inspection and pass it and then make a little change over here in the side of the garage area and kind of slip back out there without letting the official look at it and uh, then of course if you, you went very much faster they then they would come look at it anyway you know, sound the alarm to them but and we did that, you know. And sometimes we did it for, for the fun of doing it. And sometimes we did it for, to try to make our stuff go faster than those other guys. And uh, during the times of just, I, I could almost say it's almost like the golden era of NASCAR when you, you know, you, uh, Richard Petty, uh, Kyle Yarbrough, Darrell Waltrip, just how special was it during those times when NASCAR was really beginning to take off? Oh, it was really good, you know. We had a lot of good camaraderie, uh, but we also had some intense competition. And there were a few guys that could get away with stuff. You know, they had the, the a few of the ins inspectors kind in their pocket, friendly with them, or had extra money that maybe they could slip over to them or something like that. And that did go on, and, and I, that really riled me. It uh, caused me to have a few hard words with with a few different people along the way, but but it also helped one guy go better, and it made everybody have to figure out how to go a little bit better to catch that the first guy. And uh, I know just off the track, I've I've read that you're a very uh, avid fisherman. Uh, where did that uh, come from, and how has that kind of been a great outlet for you outside of racing? Well, my dad really enjoyed fishing, and he had a younger brother who was addicted to fishing. Uncle Jake went fishing all the time, 
And sometimes he'd take me with him. Sometimes he'd take Donnie. Sometimes, once in a while, 80, but not very often 80 or time. But me and Donnie, but we could we could convince Uncle Jake that he ought to take us fishing. And uh, I don't know how much fishing you've ever done, but when that thing hits that bait and wiggles that rod for you, it's a, just a sensation that pure pleasure. And uh, so I really enjoyed that. And I got some pretty nice fish equipment. I even worked one summer in a, in a tackle shop in Miami. And uh, I would work, do special things to, to earn enough to, to get some nice piece of fishing equipment myself or something like that. And, and then I would see a little stream here or there or a little pond here or there. And you'd be surprised throw a good lure out into a stream or a pond like that and have a pretty nice bass jump on that thing. It really, really was a good feeling. I know, uh, the only fishing I've done is, I believe I was five or six, my dad took me to like a park or something, and I had won like second biggest fish trophy or something like that. Still have it. I'll dig it out sometime. But um, but yeah, just when it comes to fishing, uh, just I've read that you had, um, there's like this uh, bass uh, tournament that they had in, in the infield of Daytona. What was, how was that? Yeah, yeah that was pretty good. Uh, I won that three three times, and the prize was a boat, motor, and trailer. But it was really a-okay. Um, I had that last boat, motor, and trailer until, well, and I spent about 10 or 15 years ago, it finally went away, but, but it was from back in the, the 60s. So uh, I'd had it a long time. And, uh, but, but any... First of all, any contest is beat the other guy, just like racing. Beat the other guy. And, and so uh, even if you didn't get a, a boat or a cash award or something like that, if, if you beat the other guys, you still still got to win for that day. And uh, we did that some. And I actually had a fold-up Daiwa fishing rod. It was like a brief briefcase. And I uh, had my favorite lures in there, and, and I could just open that thing up and matter a few seconds, put, the, put it together, and, and I go fishing. And so along, along the way there, they decided, well, it'd be fun to have a fishing contest in the, in the lake back there in the infield. And uh, I, I thought that was really a good idea. And of course, like I say, I won the thing with three three times and uh, and had a nice prize for, for winning. That's a really great prize to be asking. Um, but uh, final question, uh, 2011, you were inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Uh, just what were your emotions during that and how special was that just for your entire family, knowing how much you guys have just worked and gone through stuff? Well, I was in, in incredibly honored by that, you know, I was afraid that I'd be honorable mention. There were so many guys that had done good, and uh, and 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 I knew I had done good, uh, but I think one of the things that really helped me come out on top for the for the Hall of Fame uh, is 
people around the, the country had a chance to write in and, and uh, affect the vote. And uh, a lot of people wrote in for me. But there's a lot of a lot of people that really were paying attention, voted for me too. So I, I thought that was really super. And uh, the family, of course, was, was all cheering for me and enjoying it with me, and uh, family and friends. So uh, and to go in there right to the second year of the, of the original deal was really special. That's all the uh, questions I have, uh, Mr. Ellison. I appreciate all the time that you've given me today. And, uh, you know, um, just continue to stay safe and healthy. Okay. Good deal. Thank you. You have a good day. All right. You have a good one, too. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Behind the Catch Fence with special guest Bobby Allison. It was a real thrill being able to hear Bobby reminisce just about how he got to start, where the Alabama game came about, and just his love for fishing. It was really just heartwarming to hear how much his family has just played such a pivotal role in his life. And after talking about fishing with him, I feel like I should give it another chance maybe. I mean, hey, maybe I can improve on my five-year-old self with winning second biggest fish. I'll have to dig that out, by the way. Maybe I could post it on the social media channels. <laughs> Uh, but I'd like to thank Carrie Hewitt and Bonnie Allison Farr for making this all possible. I'd also like to thank Bobby once again for coming on to the podcast. We are just about out of time for today's episode, so look out for more interviews and content over the next couple weeks. Before I go, make sure to follow this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Behind Catch. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you guys later.